As you know, we read earlier from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, of Matthew's account of the nativity, the birth narratives of Jesus. And I've chosen this week to focus on a particular group of characters called the wise men, the magi. And there are many questions that come to our minds. And we have to remember, let's stick to the central things because who they were, what exactly brought them, what was the star of David, star of Bethlehem, all these things are interesting, intriguing, but they're secondary questions to the main point that caused Matthew to include this story in the gospel narratives. What was in his mind? What was going on? Uh, and so we, we're going to focus on some of the details, but remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, there are so many intriguing questions. What you see here is a painting by Giotto, and you see above the, where the family is, you see a, a comet. Uh, and Giotto interpreted the, the star of Bethlehem as a comet, perhaps because in the 14th century when he was painting, they'd had a recent visit from Halley's Comet that comes by every so every few decades, 80 decades or so. And so he said, all right, let's put, put a comet there. Nobody actually believes that the, it was a comet, but still it sets us down an intriguing line of questioning. And, um, you know, I don't think any pastor is safe when they start looking at intriguing questions online and and um, I just want to encourage you to have a look at a website which is called mantelligence.com and it starts off with saying, hmm, would you like to appear interesting? Well, why don't you start to learn to ask some interesting, intriguing questions? Um, and I encourage you to do this because it's a way of icebreaking. If you have an icebreaker in your regular weekly cell meetings or if you're having an online party, you, you know, this is like some quizzes and questions. Interesting questions to ask. And I, intriguing questions. One of the intriguing questions that I want, want to pick out, if you could ask advice from any historical figure, who would it be? What would you ask them? Hmm, interesting. Uh, how about this one? Um, if you had a theme song, what would your theme song be? Hmm. Um, what about this? Uh, if your house was on fire, everyone is safe, all the pets are safely out, all the wallets and cash are saved, if you could make one last dash into the house to get something, what would it be? All right. Intriguing questions, but I don't suppose all that relevant to our topic today, but intrigue, intriguing questions. Another website I consulted, goliath.com, lists 15 seemingly simple questions we don't know the answer to. All right, one of them is, why is ice slippery? Ever? Laying up, laying awake at night, wondering the answer to that 
intriguing question. How about this one? How do bicycles work? Well, it's quite simple. They've got two wheels and the wheels go round. But no, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, another one. Why, why are some people right-handed and other people left-handed? How does gravity work? How about this one? If you're fond of animals, ask yourself the question, intriguing, why do cats purr? Mm. Well, you might say these are seemingly trivial questions, but we can all probably think of intriguing questions, questions that catch our curiosity and we just kind of like to know the answer to. Well, I'm going to tell you from the, the story I've read this morning in Matthew chapter 2, one of the most intriguing questions of all was who were these wise men? Where did they come from? What did they see that caused them to make that long journey from home, wherever it was, somewhere in the east, to Jerusalem? And what was the star of Bethlehem? Now, there is in the, the church of nativity, there in Bethlehem, there is a feature which is called the Star of Bethlehem. And um, it's quite an unusual story, actually, because we're told that when the Persians invaded in 614 AD, it was their habit of destroying everything Christian, including churches. But when they came to the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, they left it intact. Why? Because they saw a painting on the inside that depicted the Magi, the wise men, coming to Bethlehem. And they were all in the painting dressed in Persian clothes. So they said, okay, we'll leave that one <laughs> as it is. But the question remains, who were these men? Now, the more important question is, why does Matthew put it in the story? Obviously, it happened, but why does he include it? What was his particular interest? What was his particular purpose for doing that? Well, the Bible says they were from the East. Now, all kinds of scholars and historians have been confident about telling us which country it was, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or the Yemen, which is, was then known as Persia, Arabia, and Sheba. We do know that these wise men were a, a, a part of a particular class of people. They were religious scholars. They were often priests of the Persian religion and therefore highly respected, very important people, and they had particular skills. Following their customs and their religion, they had particular divination skills, magic skills, dreams they could interpret, signs and portents pictured in the heavens. They, they, they could read all that kind of stuff. Now, I want to make it clear that today we're not advocating any form of modern astrology or divination. There is a whole pagan tradition, polytheistic tradition, and it's alive today in modern astrology where people consult astrological charts based 
on a pagan system of interpretation. Now, I'm not talking about that. But I do believe that God can speak to us through the heavens. He can give us signs of the times. The book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, the story of creation, showed that it was God who created the heavens. He created the stars. He can name them. They're called the morning stars which sang as God brought forth the rest of creation. So this stuff is real and in God's hands it can become revelation. Genesis 1.14 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day and night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Now, this can be far more than just separating day and night or summer from winter. The Hebrew words indicate that God can use the heavens to speak to us. And indeed, Psalm 19 tells us that's exactly what happened. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day brings forth, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So we're talking about revelation. We're not talking about divination. We're talking about revelation. And God can take any natural event that is taking place in the stars above, on the earth beneath, and speak to us through these things, revelation. And here, the Bible says that God's revelation goes out to all the earth simply as we look up into the heavens and are in awe of the majesty and the glory of God. And this is what I would say to anybody that is into modern astrology or into any form of divination, astrological stuff. Let me tell you, be less concerned about the stars and fall in love with the God who made the stars. We serve him. Now, my point here is that God can still use the heavens to speak to us. Verse uh, 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line, and this may even be a reference to the ecliptic line, which is that imaginary line that the, the, the stars and the, uh, and the constellations follow in their, in their travel across the skies. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The Apostle Paul uses this in Romans chapter 1 to say everybody knows they know that God exists. They know that he is powerful. They know that he is glory because the heavens declare it. What God has created shows it. But on top of that revelation of God's majesty, is it possible that God can speak through a particular heavenly sign in a way that people could read it and understand it? And if so, is this what the Magi saw. Now, uh, is there any biblical data that helps us? I, I believe so. I believe there is. If we have a look at Revelation, 
the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, yeah, you've sussed me out as I've been doing all this study on eschatology. I found this passage and I've consulted one of my favorite theologians, Dr. Michael Heiser, and here's his take on it. It's very, very, very interesting. First of all, Revelation 12 is very often used as signs of the second coming, but actually in its context, it speaks into his first coming. Let me read it for you. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and onwards. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now I'll pause there because that's a quotation from Psalm 2, a messianic psalm concerning the king of the Jews, concerning Messiah who would rule all the nations. Very, very significant. Now, what we discover is that this heavenly sign that is recorded in Revelation chapter 12 so perfectly fits the birth story of Jesus and of Herod and of the wise men, the Magi. Why? Because the symbolism and the imagery used was well known in that generation to indicate certain things. The woman clothed with the sun. Now I'm going to describe an alignment of the planets and the stars that took place on a specific date uh, and they've done astronomical calculations and I could give you the specific date when Christ, according to this, was born, if this interpretation is correct. But let me hold you in suspense there for a moment. So this particular, in the picture of the woman, in that constellation, in the middle of it at a certain time, there was the sun, it appeared, clothing the woman with the sun, the moon at her feet, in this constellation and an alignment, that moment when the moon was directly under the knee, underneath the feet of this woman pictured in that constellation in heaven, happened for a short time, 80 minutes only. And if the wise men, if this is what they'd seen, they would have known within 80 minutes the exact moment when the king of the Jews was born way over to in the west from them. And that's why they went to Jerusalem. On her head, a crown of 12 stars. Well, there was at this particular, in this constellation of Leo, which is the king, the lion king, tribe of Judah symbolism here, Jupiter, the king star, Regulus, the king planet. All of this was regular terminology of the day. Now, we don't think so much about that. 
mainly in London because we can't see the stars. The only stars we might see are those that come out of the stage doors in the West End. But where I come from, Africa and Australia, come with me right now. Come with me to Australia under a starry sky, to a place where there's no dust and no pollution, and you will be blinded and dazzled by the Milky Way. It is so strong. How many people know what I'm talking about you, from your own countries or where you've been? It's so amazing. You think, London, why'd I ever go to live in London when I can live under the stars and reach out and almost grab them? It's so real, so splendid. And so the 12 stars in this constellation. And also, the dragon was a particular set of constellation, so of stars. And when that dragon is under the feet, the dragon is ready, waiting to devour and destroy the Christ child. Who does that remind you of? Why? It has all the scene and setting for our story today. Now, we also know <clears throat> that as well as this constellation, which it's one of the details and it's, it's speculative and, uh, you know, but it's interesting nevertheless. The Bible makes it very clear that they, what they saw in addition to what they might have seen was a bright star and they saw it at sunrise and this was an unusual event, would have been to the west of them and they recognized this immediately as the star of the Messiah, the star of the king of the Jews. We don't know what their background was. It is possible that these were Jewish, they believed in the God of Israel. It's possible there were Jewish communities right from Daniel's time in Babylon and other places, and Daniel himself was counted amongst the wise men of that particular generation, but he was loyal to God and did not practice earth-to-heaven divination, but received heaven-to-earth revelation. That's why he was he was the most famous of all the wise men because he was not in touch with speculative pagan divination, but he was in touch with the revelation that came from heaven. God spoke to him. We know that these Jewish communities continued right up until the time of Christ and even today. But one thing we can be sure of is that these wise men, these uh, people from the East, they would have known Jewish people and picked up certain Jewish thoughts and expectations. They would have known that Israel was hoping and waiting for Messiah to be born. And this was highly relevant to them. And when they saw that star, they said, off we go. We're going to go and meet him. We want to meet him. Isn't it interesting that the possibility exists today, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus Christ did come 2,000 years ago and that the gospel story is true. Don't you have some curiosity? Wouldn't you want to come and meet him? They made that long journey in order to do that. But there was a problem. Their revelation or understanding was incomplete. They didn't know exactly where in Israel Messiah was going to be born. So by now the star had ceased to guide them, and so they said, well, we'll go to Jerusalem and we'll ask about. So they asked questions and it didn't take long. Maybe they went 
looking in the palace in the first instance. King of the Jews, he must be in the palace. But the man who was in the palace was himself a fake Messiah. Did you know that? Herod was a fake Messiah. He was called the king of the Jews. He was so proud of this official title and he got it with a lot of intrigue and a lot of infighting. He had to get out of uh, uh, the land and, and go take refuge in Rome and then go back and conquer Jerusalem. And he was, he was one of the kings of the Jews, but eventually he became the king of the Jews. And he did this because he was saying, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah. And then when the wise men appeared and said, we've, we've heard the, the Messiah, uh, the king of the Jews has been born. What? The king of the Jews? I am the king of the Jews. Well, I don't know how wise these wise men really were, but they might have replied, no, not you. You're a fake Messiah. We're going to find the real king of the Jews. Well, we knew immediately that Herod was furious and he was jealous. He was a very paranoid, unstable man. I'm going to talk about him next week. He was furious. So he said, I've got to come up with a plan. And this was his plan. Right. Okay. I'm going to take this as fact. They say they've seen a star and that star is going to reveal where Messiah is. All right. So I better, better get ahead of the game. And this is how he did it. He went to the chief priests and the scribes and he says, quickly, go and get out those old dusty books. Go and find out where is Messiah supposed to be born? Well, they did their studies. They researched. They went online. They Googled it or whatever else they could do in those days. And of course, they came up with the answer right there in the Bible all along. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Oh, he came back. They came back and said, here is the verse. Here is the chapter. It's absolutely clear. Messiah is born in the land of Judah in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And so Herod told the Magi this. And then he had this little trick. He said, oh, I'm so excited that you found the real Messiah. I am so happy. I want to worship him. So you go and when you find him, let me know so that I too can come and worship him. And of course, it was a lie. And that's why Herod sent the soldiers to go to Bethlehem and kill all the children two years and under, which shows you that the story of the wise men is not as Christmas cards show with them, uh, you know, kneeling down uh, before baby Jesus in the, in the manger with the shepherds there. This happened a little later on. But right then, the Bethlehem star reappeared. So let's talk a little bit about that. What exactly is the star of Bethlehem. Right up, I'll tell you the answer straight away. Are you ready? Nobody knows. We don't know. 
But it's interesting. You see, when you do a Bible study, it's good to ask certain questions, but don't, you know, miss the wood for the trees. Because it doesn't matter what the star was or even who these men were. What matters is this happened and why does Matthew include it in the story? And we'll come to that. But let's just go down that interesting route for a while. So we, we saw Giotto, who in 1305, he paints this picture, Giotto di Bondone, and he shows a star looking like a comet, as I already mentioned. Uh, the Halley's Comet had recently passed the Earth, so probably he was just painting that. But that started the tradition that it was a comet. But actually, the comet doesn't really fit. It was visible to everybody, and it was, it's not, it doesn't last very long. And um, nothing fits the history that we're talking about. Others have said, oh, what about an exploding star, a supernova? That's what happens when a star explodes at the end of life. Just one final push of brilliance before it expires. And there was a very bright supernova, 5 BC, but wasn't in the right part of the sky. And like comets, so supernovae, they, they have a reputation of meaning, you know, something bad, not good news. Then there's been another set of explanations from the natural world looking at the alignment of certain planets. What you're seeing now is a double alignment of Jupiter and Venus. Venus, the brightest star, Jupiter, the second brightest star. Uh, and when they come into conjunction, shines quite brightly. Uh, and others have mentioned Jupiter and Saturn coming together. By the way, if you're an astronomer, you might be interested that there's going to be another alignment of Jupiter and Saturn on the 21st of December. It doesn't mean that we should celebrate Christmas on the 21st as opposed to the 25th. There are other reasons for that. And it doesn't mean Jesus is coming back on the 21st of December. But just, just have a look at it. So all, all of this is, is interesting. And the particular thing about planets, particularly Jupiter, it has a retrograde motion because of its orbit. It appears to be wandering in the sky. In fact, the, the word for planet in Greek means something that wanders as they watch the star it wanders around. And also these conjunctions come and go within a short period of time. And it is possible that they saw one conjunction while they were in their homeland and another one at this particular point. Now, all those explanations are interesting. They are details. We don't fall out over that. Interesting and intriguing, providing we don't miss the main point. And we haven't mentioned another explanation which is this was a supernatural manifestation. How about that? Do we have to find Mars and Jupiter and all this to come up with an explanation? Maybe, if it fits, that's fine, that's interesting, so long as you don't waste too much time on it. Mind you, if you want a doctorate and become famous, have a go at sorting all that out. But the other possibility, which is very feasible in my mind, well, this was a light that God put there supernaturally, so unusual. That could well be the explanation. But not as important as why the story appears in the first place. What was it that Matthew wanted us to know? First of all, I would say it was this. Hey guys, 
The king of the Jews has come. And by the way, don't just listen to our testimony of what we've seen, but wise men from the east, they saw it. They weren't a part of the covenant of Israel, but they saw it. So why don't you see it? It was another pointer to the fact that Messiah had come. Foreigners recognized it. And if the idea about the constellation alignment in Revelation 12, the whole world had access to the revelation, the gospel being presented in the heavens. But we move on from that to see that what God is saying to us here, why Matthew included it for us all, is that Jesus is for everybody. So that, that star of Bethlehem was happening whether people noticed it or not. If Revelation 12 really was an alignment that spoke of that 80-minute window, uh, the exact time when Messiah was born, I could give you the date, but I won't. You can be curious for yourself. It would tell us something that even now is accessible. Anybody can go to Revelation 12. Anybody can put that data into a computer to wind the celestial clock backwards to find out. And there was just that alignment at a certain date which corresponds totally with what we know historically about where and when Jesus was born. And more than that, the real question is, why was Jesus born? He was the Messiah, going to rule not just king of the Jews, but over all nations. And this, the very heart of Jewish messianic hope, especially at a time of occupation and exile, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. 60 verse 30, all nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Friends, all this tells us God is at work. He's working in the heavens. He's working in our hearts. And he's working that same plan of salvation. For the first coming of Jesus is not the end. It points to the second coming of Jesus. It points to the message that he gave while he was on this earth. And it points to his death and resurrection on the cross. It points to the salvation that is offered. And history is moving forward by the working of God. Nothing will ever stop God, not just from telling his story, but from unfolding that story in the lives of kings, scholars, atheists, believers. That same story. And it centers around the assurance of the messianic kingdom of God with Jesus Christ at the center of it all. Now I want you to cue up for me, Dr. R.T. Kendall. Every time R.T. was with us, he would end his message with a presentation as similar to what you're about to 
see right now. And so we got in touch with them recently, say, RT, we'd like that. We'd like to put it on our internet. We'd like to show it sometimes at the end of a sermon. So let's listen to what he has to say right now. Let me know when you're ready while you're queuing it up. What we're going to be doing this Christmas time is really focusing on the gospel. And when RT is queued up, we will show you him. But in the meantime, we want the ABC of the gospel and to encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. A is there's something for you to admit that you're a sinner, that you need Jesus. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. B, there is something for you to believe, to believe that Jesus Christ came for you and that the story is not just about a baby in a manger, but it's about everything that happened in his life. And then there is a C, to commit your life to that same Jesus, to say, Jesus, I'm going to put all my trust in you to be my savior. I, I, it's not automatic just because he came. It doesn't mean to say you're automatically saved. No, you have to choose to commit your life to Christ. And then I add a D, and the D is of discipleship, to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And we want to hear from you in the Zoom room afterwards and also let somebody know that you're interested and you can very, very clearly make connection with us. So I need a yes or I need a no. Here we go. Over to RT. The greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world was when God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Here's what happened. On the day we call Good Friday, Jesus of Nazareth, who had lived for 33 years, he never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He fulfilled the law of God. That meant he never sinned. He was sinless, 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of his life. And then, when he went to the cross, he uttered these words, It is finished. That meant not only had he completed the work that God told him to do, he says, I've come to finish his work. But when he said, it is finished, that's the English translation of a Greek word, tetelestai, that meant paid in full. That was in the ancient marketplace, if they've just stamped your bill, tetelestai. Your bill was paid. Your debt was paid. And what happened? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the debt you owe. You see, you owe God a life not being simple, a life that is righteous. You owe him that. But none of us can pay that. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible, in a nutshell, is summed up in these words, John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. That means you won't go to hell, but you will have everlasting life. And so the most tender, loving question that can ever be put to you is, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? You see, this life is not all there is. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto mankind, humankind, once to die, but after death, the judgment. This means that we're going to stand before God. Let me ask you this. If you were to stand before God, and you will, and He were to ask you this question, and He could do, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, you may say, I've tried to live a good life. I've done my best. I was brought up in a Christian home. I would say that just means you had a head start. You may say, well, I was baptized. I would have to say lovingly to you, that's not good enough. Even the best life you can live, you say, well, that's not fair. All we can do is our best. But you see, our best will always come short of the perfect life God wants. Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. He was born of a virgin. That means that God was his father, and that's why we refer to him as the God-man. He was man as though he were not God. He was God as though he were not man. And when he died on the cross, he paid our debt. I've got one hope of going to heaven. It's only one. Jesus died for me. But the good news is, Jesus died for you. But it doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven until you come to the place that you accept God's plan for your life and accept that you have sinned and realize your only hope is what Jesus did for you. I would urge you to pray this prayer wherever you are. Pray it right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by Jesus' blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it, you're ready, you're saved. Don't be ashamed. Tell someone that you've prayed that prayer and know this is the way you go to heaven. And if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, that means you've just been born again. Happy birthday.